Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Equip You Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And with us today is our friend and brother in Christ, Richard Moore. Richard, welcome back to the show, brother. Hey, Dave. Thanks for having me again. Glad yeah, to be here. Yeah, man. You've been you've been a little bit busy with things with American gospel and, and uh, those kind of things. Want to catch us up on that? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, a couple of episodes of American gospel came out, um, grave soaking and God— God's Generals or something like that. I forget the exact title. The Generals one, uh, we appeared, or I appeared in two uh, of those episodes that were just available for a short time. And uh, they'll be available when the whole series comes out. So uh, Brandon's working hard trying to get all these uh, these episodes together. And he's uh, trying to think of ways to uh, to present it, but probably in a couple, couple uh, series or, or, or seasons, as it were. Yeah, yeah, so that was good, and we did a live stream together with uh, a lot of uh, uh, Justin Peters, um, Chris Roseborough, um, who else was with us? Um, uh, uh, Jesse, Jesse Westwood. Jesse, Jesse was with us, um, and Stephen Kozar, and uh, we all spoke about um, the sad departure, in my in my opinion, of Michael Brown from the documentary. It's for me, too bad. I really love to have his voice added to the documentary to give it some balance. But uh, yeah, I guess he's not interested in equal weights. Uh, he uh, left his voice, took took his voice away from the project, and now we don't have equal weights. Uh, we'd love to hear what he has to say on those things. So, but uh, yeah, and um, what else? Yeah, that was a cool live stream. I think um, seen by a lot of people. I hope and giving people lots of help in understanding what um, this movement's about, the new apostolic reformation. Yeah. And, so. and, and they're, uh, they're doing guys a whole like season or, or maybe multiple seasons of episodes. Brandon is on this very movement. And so if you're not subscribed to the American gospel, let me go ahead and say it's not only, you know, they have the, the first American gospel, the second American gospel, and now they're working on the third one, but they have a plethora of podcasts and you know, documentaries and movies. It's it's well worth the five ninety nine to support. Absolutely. They're they're doing great work and uh Brandon's a great guy. So there's a I shout out. The- as a big shout out, AGTV is a must subscribe, in my opinion, you know, especially with the, the state of entertainment these days. Um, please go get a, a subscription to that. There's lots of great material on there, not just podcasts, not just films, Luther, stuff like that is on there. All the reformers, you know, I watched a, a, a Wycliffe film the other day. Yeah, that was good. Just so it's really cool. Lots of great stuff. So, yeah. We got this. You got this article in the World Evangelical Alliance's journal in the Evangelical Review of Theology titled the article is titled, guys, the new apostolic reformation and its threat to evangelicalism. Uh, Do you want to maybe get into a little bit of the history of the new apostolic reformation, which, guys, I know we've talked about on the show, but there's a lot that we haven't even touched. So uh, go ahead. 
Yeah, sure. Um, you know, uh, I would just say, uh, you know, there's lots of background in this whole thing, but, uh, you know, the start, uh, as far as we understand it, um, is probably C. Peter Wagner in the sense that C. Peter Wagner coined the phrase. So, of course, there's lots of background before Wagner, which some people will say, hey, if you just start with Wagner, Richard, um, then you're missing the latter rain movement which I think probably is very, very significant. The new order of the latter reign is the movement from the 1940s to 50s that um, we talk about the five-fold ministry. And when we talk about the five-fold ministry, we're talking about apostles, prophets, teachers, evangelists, and shepherds. And so the five, uh, five they call them offices. And that comes from the new order of the latter reign, just to give a little back background there. And they uh, were a um, restorationist movement that wanted to restore the offices of apostle and prophet to the church. And that developed, I guess, throughout the church uh, from the 40s and 50s. It, uh, that was uh, the movement, the, AO, the AOG condemned that movement, by the way, Dave, just to give you a background. The New Order of the Latter Rain was an aberrant movement, almost fully largely recognized by all of evangelicalism as an aberrant movement. And um, hmm. then, you know, and later on in C. Peter Wagner, um, he was a missiologist to give people just a little bit of a background. I feel like we've done this before, but let's just go ahead. It. Yeah, it's okay. It's okay. People might have forgotten. Uh, so it's yeah, always good and, to keep it in exactly. front of people. Keep it in front of people. Exactly. C. Peter Wagner um, in the late 90s was a, he not just in the late 90s, but he was a, uh, in the late 90s, he, he coined the phrase, the new apostolic reformation. He was a missiologist and professor at Fuller Theological Seminary. Actually, my dad had him. I have wow. some of his old books up here. Um, funny enough, um, the funny. Pentecostals are coming and stuff like this. So C. Peter Wagner was a professor then and in 1999 he was a missiologist and so he recognized the missiological movement the missiological nature of this movement and he was trying to give it a name hmm. and he settled on the name the new apostolic reformation hmm. and in 1999 he left fuller theological seminary of his own uh, you know of his own admission he left uh, fuller to become a member of this movement um, not just to, uh, to to observe anymore. He wanted to become a, a personal part. Yeah. And so he said in his in his own uh, one of his own papers uh, in a theological journal that he left the movement in '99 to start the Wagner Leadership Institute. Um, and the Wagner Leadership Institute was there for impartation of the apostolic and prophetic offices. So he wrote that all himself. Those are his words, not mine. No one's putting words into his mouth, which is often the claim of the critics. So uh, if you weren't aware, Dave, I'm a critic. Uh, yeah. You are? Oh, my goodness. Wow. I'm a critic of the movement. <laughs> Me too. Wow. Just to, be on the, just to be on the up and up so everybody knows where we're coming from. <laughs> right, right. Um, but C. Peter Wagner said uh, that his Wagner Leadership Institute would be one of the models for the uh, education program of this movement yeah. and the the education major emphasis on the education will be the impartation of anointing and the impartation of the apostolic and prophetic gifting so and office yeah so that's, that's a little bit of a 
Yeah, no, that's that's good. Was there anything else that you wanted to to add to what you already just shared? Yeah, the um, you know, I, I mentioned the new order of the latter rain. I think the new order of the latter rain is important because it established this this apostolic and prophetic um, a restoration. So funny enough, restorationists are cessationists. They believe that the gifts ceased for about 2000 years until they were restored um, in the new order of the latter rain movement in the 40s and 50s. Anyways, I digress. Um, the 40s and 50s, uh, the 23rd General Council of the Amer- Assemblies of God condemned the latter rain in their in their minutes meeting, um, in their minutes in the, in the 49 uh, minutes, they condemned the new order of the latter rain. But the NAR, Shayan, for instance, as well, they're very high on the new order of the latter rain. And they have to be because that's when the apostolic and the prophetic were restored. Try to look through history. And does anybody in history name themselves an apostle or a prophet? No, except for the like the Tzvikau prophets um, in Luther's time. And they were handily, summarily dismissed. Hmm. Um, think about that. Isn't that interesting? I just I, I should do something on Tzvikau prophets. Anyways, uh, so yeah, just as kind of an aside, that's all condemned. All the new or latter rain stuff, especially the apostolic and the prophetic um, things in the 23rd meeting of the General Council of the Assemblies of God condemned them. So just to kind of give a background. And then yeah. Wagner came along in the late 90s, um, and early 2000s and really established the NAR and got its footing, especially in America. Yeah, that's really good. Well, we're going to get into a little bit of the theology, and I think there's no other better way to do that for people than to talk about the passion translation. But before I draw Richard back in, uh, we're going to, I'm going to talk about that for just a brief minute. And then we're going to watch two clips back to back uh, with Brian Simmons, who is the lead translator of the passion translation. Um, Brian was a translator with new tribes, but um, he doesn't have any qualifications to translate scripture at all. Um, he was actually, I believe, Richard, if this is correct. Yeah. Uh, my, my, my understanding basically is that he worked with new tribes, and but he wasn't like the lead translator, and he doesn't have any formal Greek or Hebrew like you would expect somebody to have the very best Greek and Hebrew uh, when they tra- are translating the Bible. And plus they would have to, you know, go on the field and be learning um, before yeah. they're allowed to, you know, teach uh, this uh, teach uh, Greek and Hebrew, so um, you know. Bet, and, and not only that, but your your better translations like the new New American Standard Bible, the English Standard Version, um, the Legacy uh, translation, and uh, those kinds of ones. They all have a team of scholars with the best degrees, the the, the top yeah. scholars in their field. So there was no accountability in in addition to that, and so um, that's correct. Yeah. Yes. And Neutra's mission actually subsequently has said that he was not involved in any part of translation work on the field. So I don't know what his tasks were on the field. They have not come forth and shared that, but he did not do any translation work previously. Yeah. So, 
And when when I when I talk about when I talk about this, I um, when Doreen and I and when I've done other episodes on this, I get a tremendous amount of pushback. Well, you're just pushing back and you're saying that the this thing, this person has to have a degree. The reason that people have to have a degree is Greek and Hebrew are highly specialized academic fields. So in order to no, he does not know Greek. I can pr almost promise you he does not know Greek or Hebrew. Right. I've studied Greek and Hebrew. Me too. In, in, in Bible college. I'm not I'm not I, I really am not great at it. I know where to find and know what know what to do when I have right. to do my own exegesis of my passages of scripture that I'm preaching on. But this guy does not know Hebrew and Greek on the level to be able to translate the Bible. I think right. he's guessing, honestly. I, that's yeah. an honest, my honest opinion of him. Yeah. Let's give some people, before we listen to him talk about how this translation come into being, I got a few examples. That I'll only give it just a few. So John 1.14, um, in the Passion yeah. Translation, it says, And so the living expression became a man and lived among us. And we gazed upon the splendor of his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father overflowing. So let's consider the English Standard Version. Um, John 1, 14, the English Standard Version. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So um, we know that this is dealing, John 1, 14 is dealing with the incarnation of Christ. Um, the Word became flesh. The Passion Translation says the living expression became a man. Um, yeah. So that's uh, denying the deity of, of Christ, really, uh, minimizing it. Um, that another He's one minimizing that, it. Yeah. Yeah. Another one that's really, really egregious. Now, this passage is controversial. Um, I, I understand that. But, I mean, what he does to First Timothy 2.12 is pretty egregious as well. Um, First Timothy 2.12 says, I don't advocate that the newly converted woman be the teachers in the church, assuming right. authority over the men, but to live in peace. Now, in the ESV, same passage, First Timothy 2.12 says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. So he's inserted lots of stuff there. Yeah. I mean, and, and these are just so. So there's just two examples. I've got some examples as well. Yeah, uh, go for it. Two, I have this in my paper that you just mentioned earlier. Galatians yeah. 2.20, Passion Translation reads, My old identity has been co-crucified with Christ and no longer lives. And now the essence of this new life is no longer mine. For the anointed one lives his life through me. We live in union as one. My new life is em empowered by the faith by, by the faith of the Son of God who loves me so much that he gave himself for me, dispensing his life in mine. So first of all, the, besides the verbosity of the translation, the emphasis on the believer uh, and Christ being one seems to be presented in such a way as to reduce the distinction between redeemed humans and the Son of God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. We live in union as one. Um, and then uh, like Romans, uh, you know, another thing, I forget which verse it was, but I went back to do this paper and I went back to my book because I had quoted him. Um, in Galatians somewhere else. And I went back to find it in the Passion Translation and it changed. He had changed it. He changed what I wrote in my book at the time um, on, <laughs> of critique of his version and it had been subsequently changed. So I put a note in my book, my most recent edition to say, this is problematic. You don't change a Bible version, right? Yep. You, 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 you stick with it, right? <laughs> 
Anyways, yeah. that's yeah. a sidetrack. I was surprised. Well, I guess not surprised, surprised, <laughs> but not surprised that he had changed his translation um, of the thing that I critiqued and yeah. probably because other people had critiqued it. That's how he, that's how he rolls sort of. Um, but Romans 12, six, um, he inserts things all over the place. Like, um, let's see what my list here. I had a list. The word realm appears in the passion translation 196 times. Wow. But, but not once in the ESV. Wow. The word anointed appears 223 times in the passion translation and only 15 times in the ESV. I would guess almost all those times referring to Jesus Christ. Um, and the two times that it refers to us as being anointed in Christ um, after we're saved, after we're sealed in the Holy Spirit. So we're not, there's no extra special anointing. Uh, Dave, I don't know if you knew that, but uh, you How can't. shocking. <laughs> I, I, I say that just for people. I say it because sometimes you just have to laugh at these things. You just got to laugh. It's, a, yeah. it's the only way really to be able to handle it and to deal with it. So when you when you hear me crack a joke, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to those who are in the movement or anything like that. Um, yeah. I don't I don't speak out against this uh, out, of, out of disrespect. I do it out of love for and concern yeah, for other right. people. So I just want to clarify that. So when you hear me laugh, I'm I'm just laughing to to be able to deal with it. That's my way of dealing right. with it. And so. I was I was probably a little provocative there, but asking you that question. Anyway, it's okay. So. It's okay. We're good. <laughs> but yeah, all Christians are who are saved and who are sealed in the Holy Spirit are are anointed in Christ. All the same. No one higher than the other. No one less than the other. Anyways, I've written a long paper on that too. Yeah. Um, and then he says, uh, 223 times to see the word activate appears six times in the Passion Translation and not at all in any other modern English translations. The word supernatural appears 37 times in the Passion Translation and not once in either the ESV, NKJV, NIV, or NASB. So overall, uh, I, I, I quote here that uh, Simmons inserts 800 instances of NAR buzzwords that are not found in English translations. Yeah. So that's well, problematic. This, yeah. And and guys, on the Passion Translation website, it says uh, that's the governing philosophy behind the Passion Translation to transfer the essential meaning of God's original message found in the biblical languages to modern English. The Passion Translation is an essential equivalence translation. So TPT or the Passion Translation maintains the essential form and the essential function of the original words. It is a meaning for meaning translation translating the essence of God's original message and heart into modern English. Now, uh, that dynamic equivalent a method of translation, it aims to reproduce the text of Scripture using modern language to communicate, you know, Scripture to modern audiences. Dynamic equivalence considers, you know, the original biblical context, culture, figure of speech, and, and more in a way – uh, to draw out the original meaning, not to change it, but to help bring it into English so that people can understand it. You know, most Bible translations fall into what we call either the literal or di di uh, dynamic equivalence translation of theory. And that is uh, the literal equivalence are those translations that provide a word for word translation or, or something like that. Um, 
Literal translations are formal equivalents. This is a philosophy of biblical translation. It aims to render the original biblical text um, as clearly as possible. So, so you would know this these translations that are uh, you know formal equivalents. They're the ESV, the English Standard Version, the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, the New King James Version, uh, the King James Version, the New Revised Standard Version, um, the uh, RSV or the Revised Standard. So, but unlike this, what what we just heard from the Passion Translation website is is what is called, in my, and this is my opinion, this is the only way this is the only the, the, see the, with these things. There's formal categories that that scholars that do translation they use yeah. actual wording that everybody knows. So this is where we get into uh, a little bit in the weeds. Uh, functional mm-hmm. equivalence can be applied to dynamic or thought for thought translations. So the passion translation, as far as I can I can see, since it's not using a one of these designations that are actually accepted in the in the field Um, functional equivalence can be applied to dynamic or thought for thought translation so this this translation the passion translation that we're talking about it says it aims on their website to be an essential equivalence Um, instead of seeking to be as close to the original languages well he doesn't know the original languages um, this essential equivalence tries to communicate the broader meaning of the original text and so what, what this does is the essential equivalent and the functional equivalent, it moves away from the formal, the word-for-word method. Um, so these two methods are naturally closer to paraphrasing. They aim to reproduce the same dynamic impact the text had on its original audience. Now, myself, Richard, others, they reject this form of biblical translation instead upholding formal equivalence because it ensures the text's biblical accuracy for readers unfamiliar with Greek or Hebrew. Now, just just one more thought here. Mm-hmm. The reason that the reason that uh, I, I talk about this, and this is, by the way, these kind of categories and things, just so everybody knows, these are mostly like your Bible college and seminary uh, type of conversations, okay? But but they're actually in this instance, they're actually really relevant because what they what it shows. Um, the reason that we walked through multiple passages and gave you examples of the passion translation is because we want you to understand. Um, this is how you translate and how you deal with the Bible. It shows what you think about the Bible. And yeah. that is that is really, really important um, because, as we've seen, they don't translate the scriptures faithfully. They don't even use categories that are accepted in academic circles. Um, and, and we know that Brian and others in this camp, I've, I've personally, I haven't personally heard like out of their mouth, but I've heard from other people who have been in this movement that, that they like to say, you know what, those people who are super smart and have degrees like Richard and I and, and others in theology that were somehow, you know, um, we have a religious spirit or we're, you know, uh, over-intellectualizing the faith or we don't have the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, and and on and on and on. And so um, it's rather it's rather tragic um, to take a personal kind of attack approach to those who are pointing out, hey, this isn't this isn't how Bible translation is done. Yeah. And and the reason that people translate the Bible, by the way, 
the reason that people spend all that time and uh, learning the language is so that they can take the Bible and translate it faithfully because they yeah. believe the Bible so that people that don't have the Bible can can read the Bible for themselves. And so this is really tragic because what it does is it it, it, it puts a bad light on the, the good work that's being done by organizations like Wycliffe and, and many yeah. others for years and years and years that believe the Bible and are taking the word of God um, – you know, from the Greek and the Hebrew to the people that don't have it so that they can read the Bible so that they can learn about the Savior who bled and died and, and rose in our place and for our sins so they could be saved and they could be part of yeah. the, the the church, the, the redeemed body, which Christ himself paid for. So I'll, I'll throw it back to you, Richard. What are your thoughts? Yeah, you know, I think it's the, the flippant attitude with which it's the, the scriptures is approached with. He's changing the meaning of scripture. You know, um, uh, academics who have looked at this, you know, um, the Bible thinker did a huge full, uh, he even hired academicians in their fields, you know, experts in Galatians and Romans. And I don't remember all the names of people. I have those in my paper, actually. But they all said, this is not the Bible anymore. And and once you're done with the clips, uh, definitely have a quote to, to, to read out um, that shows from a scholar that says this is not scripture anymore. And yeah. so the challenge is that it's changing the word of God and changing the word of God toward a theological uh, viewpoint. Like I said, the NAR buzzwords that we see laced throughout the, the New Testament, especially. But um, yeah, I, I concur with all that. This is important because this um, the word of God is authoritative. And if it's changed, especially the meanings are changed, then people walk away understanding something different about who God is. Like I just read in that that one that that we're united with Christ and there's no difference between the divine Son of God and man, and uh, that's that's dangerous, man. Yeah, and um, this first clip, in in his own words, we just talked about uh, Brian admit Brian Simmons is the is the lead translator of the Passion Translation. In his own words, he admits that he has no training in biblical languages. So that's the first clip in, in this interview with Welton Academy podcast, which has since been down but is available in another format. Uh, Brian Simmons stated, I had no minimal background in biblical language. So yeah, it was something like that. Honestly, something the Lord really helped me with. So so let's it's always um in my opinion, it's always best uh, for people and I always try to do this, not just to cite it, which I can back up my citations, but it's always better, especially in a podcast. I always want people, you know, to hear it. So let's hear that. Let's play that clip now. When you when you started this project, um, were you had you already had training in Greek and Hebrew or was this something that you had to jump into again or? I had minimal background in biblical languages so yeah it was something that honestly something the lord has really helped me with um, okay great sorry so, dude i just gotta i gotta laugh yeah um first of all pastors um need more than minimal uh exposure to the original languages i i i didn't take i took my share of greek and hebrew in bible college and i was like i'm out of here i'm done with that <laughs> You know, it was hard, but pastors need at least more than minimal languages. I'm going to say um, 
that is an really an abuse of what he wants to do or what Bible translation is, because not only does he need to be more than a minimal expert in the Greek and Hebrew and, and, and the, the biblical languages, he needs to be an expert. He has to, I, I'm sorry, but like people study, the, study this for their entire lives to become Bible translators. Uh, that's yeah. just as appalling as it could be. Um, he should not be a Bible translator. That's the bottom line. He shouldn't, he, sh he, he, he might not should be a pastor either because of the other things he's seen visions and revelations and dreams. He's gone to heaven and yep. Jesus gave him the, uh, what are the, 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 what, what book of the Bible? He gave him a, an extra chapter of the book of John in heaven. Jesus appeared to him. Um, yeah. He breathed on him. Uh, the whole the whole nine yards for him to be able to translate the Bible and gave him, you know, Christ breathed on him and set him free to translate the Bible. So he shouldn't be a pastor um, and he should not be a Bible translator because you need at least at least an expert degree in the language you're translating. Amen. You know, if you're doing if you're doing the Greek New Testament, you should be an <laughs> expert in Greek. If you're doing anything in the Old Testament, which he says he's a. Uh, expert in Song of Solomon, and he did that one first, or one of those ones first, because God gave him insights into translating the uh, the book Song of Solomon. Do you need insights, or do you just need to have? Yeah. So, sorry, right. he has to be no. an expert in Hebrew to yeah. to translate the book of Song of Solomon. You're not wrong. I mean, would we? Would you? Would, let's just put this. Let's put this another way. Would you go to a surgeon who hadn't gone to medical school? Uh, to get any any part of your body repaired or fixed, would you go to a would you go to a dentist who didn't go to dentistry school? Would you go to a pharmacist who a, a pharmacy and they hired somebody who wasn't a pharmacist to hand you medicine? Nope. And the answer is no. But you you can go you can go on the internet and you can type in whatever information that you, you that you want and you can get it. But what you should do is you should see. Did those per did those people get? Do they have any education? Do they have any knowledge? Now, I need to clarify something here, and it's really important because just because somebody went to Bible college and seminary, like we see with Stephen Furtick, he went to the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, doesn't mean that you come out of seminary and right. you're somehow solid. So, I'm not equating uh, somebody going to Bible college and seminary with them coming out and being solid. You actually have to learn the material and digest it. And, and then you're going to likely come out and be solid. And that doesn't mean, though, that if you don't have Bible college or seminary, that doesn't mean that you're any less than. <clears throat> we see a guy like A.W. Tozer. He had no formal theological training at all, and he wrote some of the greatest books, uh, you know, in the, in the 20th century. So, you know. Um, the knowledge of the holy and and those types of books that are that are really helpful to the church. Um, you can so, certainly be self trained, but uh, you know, yeah. I'm gonna t can I tell you what I really honestly think about what yeah. he's doing? Yeah, yeah. I think he's I think he's translating the Bible from the English. I think he's looking at English versions. I don't think he knows any Greek or Hebrew. Yeah, not not enough to be a translator. I think he's looking at English versions and adding his NAR flair to it. That's what I think is happening. Honestly, yeah. um, that's my honest opinion. You don't have to be held to that. <laughs> but <laughs> that's what he's doing. He's not he he has no knowledge of Greek and Hebrew. Right. 
I'm not, I'm not throwing a stone from someone who knows a ton about Greek and Hebrew. I don't, I know how to go find my words when I need them. And I need to, and I, and I look at construction and stuff like that. And I can understand very minimally Greek, but he is not a Greek and Hebrew expert. He's actually said he, God gave him the secrets to Aramaic. The Aramaic. Yeah. There's like a few sentences in the whole text of scripture that are in Aramaic. What? What is he talking about? Right. He's talking about he has some secret angle. It's this Gnostic. It's a Gnostic way to translate the Bible. He has some secrets that God gave him into the Aramaic because Jesus spoke Aramaic is what he said. But the the texts of scripture are recorded in Greek, my man. Right. <sighs> Sorry. <laughs> Just it's okay. So frustrated with this guy. Yeah. He's not translating the Bible. He's He's looking at English translations and putting his NAR's flair on it. That's what he's doing. You're right. Um, so this next clip, it, it, he he actually says basically what Richard was saying just a minute ago. He says in a, in a, in a recording on YouTube um, that we're going to look at, uh, this is uh, a video. Actually, he's talking about the Song of Solomon. He says this of how he came to translate the Bible. Let's, let's hear him in his own words talk about this. If you're really calling me to do this, I want you to speak to me, and I want it to be so clear that I have no doubt that it was you. Well, that night, after laying it out before him, I had a visitation, and I was given the commission by the Lord as he breathed on me and released me and called me to translate the Bible. And uh, I'm doing this as obedience. To me, it's an act of obedience. Yeah. So, you know, notice he says that he has a visitation. He was given a commission from the Lord. The Lord breathed on me. He released me. He called me to translate the Bible. And he's doing this as a matter of, of obedience. But again, and, and that, you know, we, we, we can maybe char- we can charitably say maybe that's true. But the, the thing is, is again, those who, this is an academic discipline. You wouldn't go to a medical doctor. You wouldn't go to a dentist who didn't have any training. Um, you wouldn't take your dog or animal to a vet who hadn't been to vet school. Um, right. and, so, and so just saying, well, the spirit gave me this knowledge. Okay. Well, okay. But well, no, what wait, about- Dave. Wait, he didn't say the spirit, did he? He said the Lord, he had an encounter, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Right. I, if I understand that video right. correctly, right, right. the Lord appeared to him. Right. Am I right? Right, right, right. And so the Lord appeared to him and right. breathed on him and and set him free to translate this scripture. Let me read a, let me read a passage of scripture from one who had had visions of Jesus Christ personally. Here's what he said. Paul writes in Colossians 2 verse 18 let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind paul the apostle who went to the third heaven right as we he, as we know he spoke about himself in the third person in his vision he did not want to go on about that vision right he will not boast about that person he will only boast in his weakness remember he said, do not let anybody disqualify you going on and on about in, 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 in detail about visions. So these people, I'm just going to obey the Apostle Paul and uh, tell him that uh, I'm not listening to him. He's going on and on about his visions, how Jesus appeared to him to release him, to free him, to do this translation. I'm not listening. 
He, the apostle Paul tells me I would be disqualified if I continue to listen to these guys bloviate about their personal visions. Does that make sense? Yeah, you're not wrong. And, and some people, you might, you might wonder guys, well, how prevalent is this? Well, um, Bill Johnson, who, who Richard and I have talked about many times, um, you know, he says this is the Passion Translation. Bill is the pastor of Bethel Church in Reading, California. He says, one of the greatest things to happen with Bible translation in my lifetime, speaking about the Passion Translation. Uh, John and Lisa Bevere, uh, founders of Messenger International and bestseller authors, um, he said, they say that this is a truly breathtaking work. We so appreciate the labor of love that went into translating the scriptures directly from the Greek, the Hebrew, the Aramaic. Uh, this has energized our study of the Bible, and we're certainly, certainly, uh, we'll do the same for you. Shayon uh, took over for Peter Wagner um, as the Chancellor of the Wagner University. He's the president and founder of Harvest International Ministry. Um, he says that the Passion Translation will be the Bible of choice for the next Jesus People movement. So. Um, it's not just, we're not just picking on Brian Simmons. This is a well-known translation. I think it was either you or maybe Holly Pivick that I heard say that they have these by the castle at Bethel Church. So if you don't think that, if you think this is overblown, it matters. Um, it really matters because what you do with the Bible as I said earlier, it reveals what you think about the Bible. The Bible is God's final and full revelation. There's no other way to know him. Yeah. And I'm not and I'm yeah. not just I'm not just making that up, by the way. That has been the consistent position of the church since uh, the second century. Um, we have affirmed the church has affirmed the inspiration, the reliable and trustworthy nature of the Bible, that the with the the um, inerrancy of Scripture, that Scripture is without error, that Scripture is infallible. It, it's without the possibility of error. That it's clear. That it's uh, sufficient. It's for a life and godliness, and it's authoritative. It's binding on our lives. And so this has been the position of the church basically right after the time of the apostles, I mean, on up to the present day with the Chicago statement so, on biblical inerrancy. And so I'm not just, we're not just making this up. And so those people who that in this movement, they say this doesn't matter. Well, I mean, you're telling people to have less than a biblical understanding of God. And we know that they make it all about my feelings and about visions and dreams and hearing from God outside of the Bible and and more. So, um, you know, what God? What what about what about the sufficiency of Scripture? You know, I mean, so yeah, yeah. Thought, I mean, this is yeah, definitely. You're you're right on the money with the the sufficiency of Scripture and. And so what happens in this movement actually is that with Brian Simmons, his visions and dreams, he had his visions and dreams and Sid Roth's TV show. And, and anybody who goes on the Sid Roth show is, is basically has to have a heaven, heaven tourism um, sort of a story or something of, of that nature. Right. Um, and so these guys, they go on and on about their visions and dreams. Um, and you, you can't be, you can't believe in the, sufficiency of scripture and continue to go on and on about your dreams and visions. What, what is the purpose of these dreams and visions, Dave, for, for God to appear to you, Christ to appear to you and give you a message. What's the message? The message is to go back and take that message to someone else to tell them what Jesus has told you. And that diminishes the scripture 
and puts your experience and your um, encounter with Jesus Christ on a higher plane. And, and so, um, you know, th this movement handles in visions and dreams and encounters. I mean, that's the biggest thing you want. I had an encounter with God, this, that, or the other thing. They, they want to talk about it all the time. And so I had a little section in my paper that actually talks about that with, with, uh, Bebbington's, uh, four, um, let's say characteristics of evangelicalism. And he said, one of them is biblicism, right? So teachers cannot claim inerrancy or that the Bible is their true and ultimate authority. And they probably do. You would ask anybody in the R uh, what they believe about the Bible. And they would, if they say, if you say, do you believe in inerrancy? They'd say yes, but you can't claim inerrancy if they teach mainly from revelations, visions, dreams, prophecies, and other epistemological sources other than the Bible. Yeah. For such a teacher, the Bible is neither inerrant nor the ultimate spiritual authority. Scripture Amen. must be the primary source of faith, teaching, and practice for you to be to be able to claim to be evangelical. So they're not evangelical because they use other epistemological sources of truth um, rather than the Bible. And it's a consistent thing. You see these guys speak. I was looking into Mike Bickle this, this last week, and Mike Bickle has... In his last most recent sermon before he was uh, told that he, he shouldn't uh, be preaching right now during these uh, allegations, he preached on his visions about the black horse. He saw a black horse. He saw Michael, the archangel, speak to him personally. Jesus Christ spoke to him personally and told him to get into a chariot to fly into heaven. Um, and then he saw a asp, a, a, a snake floating in midair. So for about a half an hour in his most recent sermon, he went on and on about his visions and dreams. So the source of, of their teaching and the and life and practice is not scripture. Right. And so, yeah. That's good. Well, um, how broad is this movement um, and on, on evangelicalism today? So you might want to mention, you know, what is what is the seven mountain mandate just briefly? I yeah. know that's a large conversation, but it kind of draws out, you know, the 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 influence and, and what their aims are and why we should be concerned about as Christians. Well, the influence is, is broad and deep. Um, uh, Doug Guybet and Holly Pivik speak about it in their books and their writings. They estimate uh, some 66 million people have significant contact with NAR teachings. Um, what that may be, it may be, a you know, Bill Johnson sermon, books, uh, materials, et cetera. It could be all, all sorts of things. But, but they estimate that 3 million people are part of NAR, explicit NAR churches that, that embrace the apostolic paradigm. And that comes from their, their information comes from Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. So they have the backing for that. Um, but then I think of, when I think of NAR influence, I think of music. Uh, Bethel Music has millions of YouTube views. Um, just their YouTube channel alone that could support uh, you and my salary um, and plus a million other people for a year. Uh, so, you know, it's crazy. Yeah. 4.5 million subscribers and their most popular songs have 50 to 100 million views. Um, Bethel when they release an album, it hits the top of the iTunes charts for a few weeks, not even just Christian, Christian uh, iTunes categories, but iTunes, top of the iTunes charts. Um, they also have 
print media, radio media, video, music, the whole nine yards. They're really, really good at uh, media. Destiny, Destiny Destiny Image, God TV. You talk about that. Charismatic Magazine. Charisma Magazine um, and more. Those are just a few that I named. Um, But they are – they they do media really well. They do content and and and, and putting mediums out there really really well. Um, then I would say CCLI just to give you a perspective of what, what is being sung. And you say, oh, we're not singing that in our church. You are. And here's proof: uh, the CCLI Christian Copyright Licensing International is the body that uh, gives you a. a permission as a church to sing copyrighted materials, uh, Christian copyrighted materials out of the eight, eight of the top 10 most widely used CCLI songs. Eight of them are from NAR or NAR related churches or artists. So that means that song has made millions of dollars um, by being on the top 10 and globally most sung music in churches. Um, and then there was a new study that came out called How Bethel and Hillsong Took Over Our Worship Sets. That's the title of their study. And they found that 38 songs that made up the top 25 or made it to the top 25 for CCLI between 2010 and 20, all but two of those songs had originated from NAR-oriented churches or organizations. Hmm. And the researchers even then said and made a conclusion that um, – pointed out that only a few of the most popular songs talk about the cross, salvation, um, instead highlighting personal experience and blessing, et cetera, NAR themes. They concluded then that the theology of these four churches um, that are deeply influenced uh, in the top top 30, uh, top 25, uh, have influenced spiritual, spiritually influenced congregations in the evangelical world through their music. Um, I'll hold up. I'll, I'll plug Doug and, and Holly's book, Counterfeit Kingdom. It's a really good read. They also talk about in one chapter, they commit a whole chapter to music and how NAR music has themes in it, like calling down prayer declarations. Um, the idea that the idea that miracles start breaking out just by speaking, um, modern day miracles, modern day resurrections and open heavens themes. So they talk about that at length um, and what themes are in the music. So yeah, um, Bill Johnson has also said, so the music is the, is, is the, is the medium, I think, in my opinion, it, it, it carries the theology. It's a Trojan horse. Uh, Holly and Doug say that it's a Trojan horse and that um, it comes in and, and then, you know, injects its theological perspectives Bill Johnson said this uh, a few years ago, I believe it was. Um, he said that um, that his artists, he would hope his artists write music anticipating what they want the church to believe and look like in five years and to integrate those doctrinal perspectives into their music so that the church will, quote, sing their way into it. So their goals are definitely to in- infuse the evangelical church with this theological perspective that is part of the apostolic and prophetic streams. They want to influence your church, your evangelical church for their theological perspectives. Yeah, that's good. Well, brother, just as we wrap up, what, uh, can you give us a few takeaways on, you know, uh, 
Yeah. What what takeaways do you have for those who listen and watch and what they should watch out for maybe uh, about this movement? Well, um, you know, some of the key distinctives you should watch out for um, apostolic and prophetic government, for sure. If a church is trying to change their bylaws, which has happened here in Germany, I have consistent uh, connection with people trying to say, what do I do? Our church is trying to change our bylaws, our leadership and governmental bylaws to uh, apostolic and prophetic government. And that's the first thing. If a church is trying to change something in their bylaws to put an apostolic leader in or a prophetic leader in, then you can know you're headed in the wrong direction and to stop it. I tell them, whatever you do, try to stop that incursion uh, to change your bylaws. Deliverance ministries, territorial spirits, spiritual mapping, generational curses, Seven Mountain Mandate, if you talk about, if you hear anybody in your pulpit talking about a mandate for this, a mandate for that, then you can probably guess. And if it's if it's talking about a mandate for government, media, family, business, education, church, religion, arts, and entertainment, those are the seven mountains of culture that they're trying to, to take over um, because they believe that, that we um, gave over dominion to Satan in this world in the fall. That's the theological perspective that that are called dominionism and we are meant to go back into those seven realms of culture and take back dominion uh, because uh jesus got that dominion back now we have to you know partner with god in taking back dominion so watch out for that um like we've been talked about a lot in this show extra biblical revelation if someone says a word of wisdom, an apostle gives you a strategic level, spiritual warfare type thing, prophetic counsels, any kind of prophetic word. I had this prophetic word. I had that prophetic word. Watch out for that. Um, oh, I'll go back. Can I go back to the Passion Translation for a minute? I, I forgot that quote that I was going to say. Yeah, go ahead. Andrew G. Sheed is a member of the Inter New International Versions Committee on Bible Translation. And... Uh, head of chair of the old testament hebrew department at, at more theological college in sydney australia he wrote a review in Thamelios magazine on the passion translation and here's his conclusion can I, i'll just read this long quote Go ahead. the passion translation is not a new translation it is not a new text and its authority derives solely from its creator like joseph smith in the book of mormon brian simmons has created a scripture with the potential to rule as canon over a new sect. The Passion Translation is not a Bible, and any church that treats it as such and receives it as canon will be by that very action turn itself into an unorthodox sect. Mm. If the translation had been packaged as a commentary on Scripture, I would not have needed to write this review. But to package it as Scripture is an offense to God, and every believer who is taught to treat it as the inscripturated word of God is in spiritual danger. That's wow. from a Bible translator. <laughs> so um, not my words. Um, and so look out for these things for sure. And look out for people who are trying to disqualify you by claiming they had wonderful visions and dreams and, and encounters with God. Um, and, 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 you know, and, and stay clear, you know, mark and avoid them if they are, trying to disqualify you through all these dreams and things and through new, the passion translation and stuff like that, just mark and avoid them. You have our permission to avoid them. <laughs> Amen. Amen. 
Well, brother, uh, thank you so much for writing this great article, for this great conversation today. You've done a wonderful job as always. We're, I'm thankful for your continued voice on these things. Keep it up and keep speaking about it because it really matters, guys. That And, and just one last thought for me is it matters that you don't have to have a podcast to talk about these things. Right. You can talk about them over the coffee, coffee table. They matter in your community because chances are – once you learn about these things, you're going to realize this is my community. This is affecting my city. It's affecting the churches in my city. And that matters. So be cognizant of that. Don't think you have to have a podcast or a radio show or anything like that or even be a blog writer. Okay? You don't. If you're a single <laughs> mom, you can speak up for the honor and glory of God. Yeah. If, if, you're, if you're at your workplace, you can speak up for the honor and the glory of God. Um, to help other people. Uh, so wherever you're at, whatever whatever office, station, et cetera, you're, you're at, this matters. And we need all hands on deck, as you've heard me say in this yeah. thing. So, brother, thank let you me, so much. Uh, let me, yeah, let me say ahead. one last thing here before yeah. we close. Uh, this moment, I feel like it is not, could not, it could be similar to um, the lead up to like the Council of Nicaea and the threat that Arianism posed to the church. Uh, it may be a threat, in my opinion, to evangelical orthodoxy that could redefine us all. Mm -hmm. And to preserve evangelical orthodoxy, it takes that individual person, like you were just talking about, Dave, that person who says, wait a minute, no, that's not biblical. Um, we have to stay vigilant to stay biblically orthodox. Um, it doesn't just happen, right? Theological entropy can take hold of us if we don't stay vigilant. And this has been the pattern throughout church history. It could happen to us too, you know, Arianism, things like that happen to them. It could happen to us. Um, and I just hope, you know, evangelicalism will, will stay the course because it, it could work, wake up one day and we discover that evangelicalism is no longer what it once was. And I just hope we can stay that course and, and fend this thing off. Yeah, it's really good. Well, guys, thank you for thank you for joining us today, Richard, and thank you for continuing yeah, to speak up Glad about it. And guys, until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You and Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter, at Servants of Grace, on Instagram, at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.